Thanks again, praise team, for leading us in worship. We invite all of you now to take a Bible and to open it to the second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 6 today. We began a series last Sunday through the Ten Commandments, and we're going to look at one commandment a week for ten weeks, taking us all the way through to August 2nd. And so today we're on the second commandment, which is verses 4 through 6 of Exodus chapter 20. We said last time, if you weren't with us um, last Sunday, that part of why these commandments uh, stand out throughout history, and many people who don't read the Bible regularly, didn't grow up in a church, maybe don't have them memorized, at least know there are ten commandments that we're told at some point in time is because the way it's told in the story of Exodus is that many, many laws were given, many more than 10, but at, at one point God wrote with his finger on a stone these 10 commandments, which in Hebrew were actually 10 words. And so just like today, when we would desire to say something that would endure over a long period of time, we will engrave it in stone. That if you put something on a post-it note, that'll last only so long. If you take the time and and write a handwritten letter, those are becoming rare, and so people will store those in a safe way. But if you want something to be read and to last for generations, you'll find some way of engraving it in stone. And so that when this happened in redemption history, it was a signal that these ten provide a sort of foundation upon which All the other ones are based. And we can only make sense of all the other ones if we look at these first and primary ones, these more foundational commandments. And so we're looking at them week by week to see what they would have to say to us. But we've subtitled the series, The Law is Lens, Mirror, and Window. And so if many of you, like me, have poor vision, what you need, like me, is a lens that helps you see the world more clearly. And that's one of the ways that theologians have described the Bible that we try to come to it and we try to understand it and interpret it correctly, but there's also a sense in which when we understand the Bible, it helps us interpret the world correctly. It helps us see things in our world that we wouldn't otherwise see apart from the revelation of God, and so we put on those corrective lenses, and that's how we use them today. I use them to see, but doctors looking through a microscope need a lens to be able to see the detail of what's in a cell and what's going on in a cell, and scientists use lenses to look out into the universe and tell us just how vast this universe is, but we need tools that help us see things that are there We just, they're not always immediately apparent to our eyes. And scripture is like that. Once we get these lenses on, it helps us see ourselves in a mirror correctly, but it also then functions like a window where we can see through it to what is a vast world and universe that our God has made. And so we're going to look at each commandment from kind of those three vantage points. If this commandment is important and true, and it really is from the God who made us, what does it tell us? about the world we live in. And then when we see the world through that way, what do we learn about ourselves and what do we learn about ultimately the son that our God sent, Jesus Christ? So we're gonna look at these first, these couple of verses, uh, verses four through six in Exodus chapter 20. This is on page 61 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And that's where we'll stop. And the first commandment last week was that we should have no other gods before him. And this one says we should not make any type of an image of anything that we see and say, well, this represents God. This is what he's like. And whether we make that image of a lion that's strong or whether we make it of an eagle that can soar the heights, whatever we would think of in our minds to say this would be a really good way to think about God, there is a prohibition for the people of Israel to use any of those things to ultimately image God. And so the first commandment is, is about relational faithfulness, that we would seek him and him alone, and that we would desire no one else besides him, that he would be the first and the foremost, the primary, the supreme in our thoughts and in our affections. What the second one gets to is another danger. So if the first one, the danger is that we might just be distracted and we'd look to other things besides God, the second danger is that when we do think of God, that we'll often think of him in inappropriate or limited in small ways. And just as it is offensive to think of someone other than God, it is also offensive that we would think small thoughts of the God who made us. He desires that we think about him appropriately. And so the quote on the back of your handout from A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And you might read that and say, I don't believe that. (laughs) There's a lot of things more important than what I think about God. But I believe this is an incredibly insightful statement. I think it's true because what comes into our mind when we think about God affects how we relate to God. It affects how we understand him, how we pray to him, how we interpret the universe. So I found it fascinating to hear this story on the radio this past week. Maybe you heard it as well. Um... But WKSU and NPR did a story, and the title is, A Deeper Look at Anger at God. This is from a researcher at Case Western University. Her name is Julie. She teaches psychology at Case Western University. She says, anger toward God is something that can come up in response to really major life events. She says, like the death of a loved one, a devastating illness, or a senseless disaster. She says our relationship with God often mirrors our personal relationships, and she's been looking at the phenomena of anger at God as a therapist and a researcher for 20 years. And here are some of the conclusions that she's come to as a therapist and a researcher. She says, Jews are actually the best at being able to embrace the idea that you can be in a relationship with God and still be mad. And that might even contribute to the intensity of our relationship, because if I didn't care, I wouldn't be here. And so that there's this flexibility in their understanding and relationship with God that they can love him and desire him and serve him, yet still at times wonder what he's doing. One of the things that later then their research found was anger at God does not always emerge in response to a catastrophic event. One surprising thing, she says, is that in a lot of our studies, the people who are most angry at God are not people who've gone through these terrible tragedies. They're people who've just been inconvenienced or for whom life is not going as they would want. 
And that could include breaking up with a boyfriend, rain on a wedding day, or a sports injury. So that the research has found that there is a direct link between our attitude towards God and our expectations of God. So they go on to say that anger often stems from an exaggerated sense of entitlement. So what that means is that in the world today, someone in America who plans and spends a lot of money on an outdoor wedding is more likely to be mad at God if it rains on that day than a peasant farmer in Africa who never got to meet his daughter. Because our view of God and our sense of entitlement has a direct effect then on our expectations in the world that we live and what's supposed to transpire. So that when we have misconceptions about God and about the world, it absolutely has psychological and emotional effects on how we live and what we expect to happen on a regular basis. And so what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us because it affects the way we view everything and how we view life. And so here in this commandment, this warning to say, don't make any images of me. Be careful to not limit your thoughts so that you would get the right expectations about me. When we look at the world through this lens, what it tells us is that God is infinite, sovereign, and a personal spirit. This is the exact language from our statement of faith as a church. That we believe that God the Father is an infinite, sovereign, and personal spirit. By that we mean there is no way that we could summarize him for everyone. There's no image that we could think of or that we could come up with that could somehow summarize all of the truth of who God is because he's infinite. He's not bound by time and space like you and I are. He is sovereign. We are created. And he is a personal spirit. He doesn't have a bodily form and is limited in the way that you and I are limited by time and space and the realms of our body. He is above that. He is bigger than that. He is the one who has given life to everything. He is the one who has set all of the things that we see in motion. He is the one who has expanded the universe in the way that he has. And so on our small little planet, in our small little mind, the idea that we would be able to come up with some kind of an icon or image or some kind of a carving that we could make that would somehow represent the one who's over all of it, is absurd, isn't it? That we would think that we could be able to do that. But when we put on the lens of scripture and hear from God himself that he is bigger and above and stronger and greater than everything that we see, we realize we have to be really humble in the conclusions that we make about the God who is there. And does an eagle show us something when you just look at it flying in the sky? about God? Absolutely, because God made that eagle. Does the strength of a lion in the wilderness say something about the strength of God? It absolutely does. Does a thunderstorm say something about the power of God? It absolutely does. Does the simplicity and beauty of a flower unfolding say something about God? It absolutely does when you're just sitting there 
chopping vegetables and you see all the variety of color and texture and is this one ripe or is this one ripe and there's a different way to engage the ripeness of all of them and you just sit and wonder at how wonderful creation is? Does all of that say something about God? It absolutely does. But no one of them says everything that there is to be said about God. Because when you consider all of that diversity, you have a God who is so much larger than we could possibly fathom, and yet has so much attention to detail, that so many things are going on all around us that we don't even realize. We don't even know. And that strikes us at times. There's the things that we know that come up and say, well, this happened yesterday, but what we don't know is the things that we were spared from that by definition we'll never know about because we didn't see it happen. You know, if, if you, like me, have had an occasion where you've hit a deer on the freeway um, and totaled your car, you know, I could feel that in the moment and say, oh, this happened. What I don't know is how many times that didn't happen. I have no idea how many times at an intersection that if I just would have made a left turn instead of a right turn, I might have been in a car accident. And I'll never know about that. We ask so many questions about what if I would have done this and what if I would have chosen this career or been with this person or this or that. Jesus, when he was on the face of the earth, said to his people that had certain things happened in a couple of cities that he actually knows what would have happened, that he has that kind of a knowledge, but we don't. We don't know what we've been spared from. In all the things that we have experienced, we don't know even the things that we have been spared from. And so I appreciated these thoughts from a theologian, John Owen, and he's actually building from the book of Exodus because right after the Ten Commandments are given, one of the things that Moses asks for is he says, God, I want to see your glory. Can you show me your glory? I've heard all of this, and it's beautiful, and it's great what you've revealed, but I want to see you. And God says to him, I'll show you something, but you can't handle everything. And so what it says is that God actually gives him a glimpse of his backside, that he, that he sees the, the tail end of him. Because if God had revealed himself in all of his glory, Moses would not have been capable of receiving it. And so reflecting on that, this Puritan John Owen says, we speak much of God. The truth is we know very little of him. We may love, honor, believe, and obey our father, and therewith he accepts our childish thoughts, for they are but childish, because we see only his back parts. And so the God that we come to and that we serve is infinite. He is sovereign. He is a personal spirit that we have so many different glimpses of him, but none of us can ultimately encapsulate him. None of us can ultimately figure him out. And so I appreciate this other quote from this book, which I, this is called The Little Book for New Theologians, and there's copies in the Welcome Center that I'm hoping many of you will take with you um, as you go, because this book is just a really helpful sort of counterpart to the series that we're going to be going through for the next 10 weeks. So it was free to us, and we give it away free to you if you're not allergic to books and you're willing to read a book, and uh, maybe in the summertime have a little more time to read a book. But this is a quote from G.K. Chesterton. He says, The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it's his head that splits. It's the poet who just asks to get into the heavens and to see a glimpse of the glory. 
It is the logician, we might even be able to add in contemporary terms, the material scientist who tries to get the heavens into his head and it's his or her head that splits. Because when we look at the world through this lens, the other thing we learn is that we have limited thoughts and perspectives. We do, don't we? And I can tell you when I was born, and so I can tell you I've lived in a fairly small geographic part of the world. I've been blessed to travel and see other parts of the world, but my experiences have been limited. But I'm stuck with my own eyes, and I'm stuck with my own mind, and I only see what I can see. And I can learn from you, and I can learn from your experience, but even all of us together, accumulatively, are fairly limited in our perspective. Great example, yesterday in Columbus at the Memorial Golf Tournament, Tiger Woods shot an 85. Last time I played golf, I shot an 86. So if I just took those two scores from a limited perspective, I could say, I'm like one shot away from apparently the greatest golfer who has ever played the game. But most of you know that's like the dumbest thing I could say, that I'd be anywhere in the same ballpark as him that I'd come close at all to ever winning a major or ever being on the PGA Tour. But I could just say, well, look, 85, 86. I mean, I do the basic math. This is like kindergarten math. One, there's only one difference between them. But that's limited. That's skewed. Of course it is. And so many times the, the conclusions that we come to about life are that way because our perspective is narrow. And as someone has commented, all theology is biography. And I realize that. I have been ridiculously blessed to have parents who loved each other and loved us and loved the Lord. And so much of what I think about God and what I understand about the world is because I was blessed to have that. I feel indebted to that. I don't regret that in any way. I don't think that's a negative. I just am so thankful for that. But the idea that I would automatically then put the exact same expectations on someone for whom that was not the experience, that that is not what they enjoyed, that they have no positive memories of their father. Sometimes they have no memories. Sometimes what they have are real and emotional and painful memories. And so they interact differently in a way than I do when Jesus says, you can pray to God as your father, and know that he's your father. It just conjures up totally different images than it does for me, totally different emotions, totally different experiences, and that's true. And I think all of us, whatever our experience has been with our parents, still have in us a desire for that type of relationship, and so we can discover God ultimately as our father, who is the ideal father and is there for us in every situation. So I don't think we have to avoid the language, but it's We're affected by it. We're affected by our experiences in life. We have limited thoughts and perspectives. When we look through this lens, we also discover that we have been made in his image, not he in ours. If you read most contemporary philosophies of religion, what they'll tell you is that every concept of God is ultimately the extension of human desires and emotions. That we we create the God we want. And he's just the wish fulfillment of all of us. Whatever we believe, whatever background or tradition is, psychologists who don't believe in God will often, they still have to explain why so many people in the world do believe in God. (laughs) So even if they don't believe in him, it's a phenomena that has to be explained. That the majority of the people in the world are praying to something, worshiping something, someone. Well, why do they do that? And so then it's explained through psychological categories that for most of us, 
We just believe about God what we hope and desire to be true about the world. And at the very birth of the nation of Israel, God says to his people, no, 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 no. I don't want you just to create me in your image. I don't want you to think that the way this relationship works is that you just come up with whatever sounds good to you and then you say, that's who I am. That, 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 it's off the table. I made you, you didn't make me. I am God, you are not. I am sovereign, you are not. I am the spirit that endures all times and places. And I've not left myself to ultimately be defined by you or by your experiences, whatever they are. I am who I am, which was the answer that he gave when Moses said, when I, when I come to them and I say, what's your name? What should I tell them? Just tell them I am who I am. I am who I am independently of what anyone thinks of me. I am who I am independently of what anyone says about me. I am who I am. That is how he revealed himself to us as the sovereign one. And then all throughout the history of the people of Israel, there was this temptation to try, and they struggled with this because we are limited, and so we want to think in very limited ways about God, and it kind of hurts our brain to think in an extended way about this God who is beyond our thoughts. But from the very beginning, God warned them and said, no, I don't want you to make images of me because I don't want you to simply make me what you think is sort of the ideal version of yourself. And that's always a good test for us. If the God that we worship and serve never disagrees with us in anything, never says anything that's hard to swallow, never challenges us in any of our convictions, then we probably are not worshiping God. We probably are worshiping the figment of our imagination. And so whenever you hear someone say in all kinds of discussions, I just can't imagine a God who would whatever. I mean, we're, it's appropriate to be honest with our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions. But be very careful when the basis on which you make your decisions about God are what you can imagine or stomach or want to hear. Because the God that I could create in the figment of my own imagination that would just do everything I'm hoping and desire to do is not the God who is the rock of ages that is cleft for us, that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God that is the figment of my imagination, I cannot look up to and say, while I draw this fleeting breath, and when mine eyes shall close in death, and when I soar to worlds unknown and see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That's only true if he's really the rock and he's really the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then it's not only you and me that can find him a shelter in the storm, but 200 years from now, people will still be able to sing about a rock of ages that is cleft for them because he is who he is and he will be whatever his people need him to be. That's the solid foundation. That is who God is. We are made in his image, not he in ours. But to build us up just a little bit, it is quite an amazing thing that we're made in his image. See, what we often do is we think 
thoughts of God that are too small, and at the same time, then, we don't appreciate exactly what he's done and given for us. So I found another story this week. Maybe you heard about this. Robots are really bad at folding towels. Maybe you heard this on the radio. This is one of the the things that distinguishes us from human beings, from robots. I'm going to start with the end. Lots of things that seem simple and orderly to us are incredibly complex and chaotic for a robot. Machines need clear rules. One of the ways to figure out if a robot is going to take your job is to ask yourself, what are the rules here? Is my job a series of decisions based on an orderly pattern, or is my job really more like a giant pile of messy laundry? And the premise is, your job is safe if it's like a pile of messy laundry, because seven years ago, this scientist set on a quest to teach a robot how to fold laundry. This proved to be a remarkably difficult task. And the difficulty of the task illuminates some of the key things about the limits of machines. A Beale professor of University of California, Berkeley, named his robot Brett, short for Berkeley Robot for the Elimination of Tedious Tasks. <laughs> for a robot, it's remarkably hard to figure out what's going on in a pile of laundry. To see and say where the underwear stops and where the towel begins, every pile of laundry is different and remarkably complex. So this team spent months staring at laundry baskets, holding up towels in the air, and taking pictures of laundry. The solution was super complicated. Can you use multiple images to build a 3D model of the current shape? Abiel says, because once you can do that, you can analyze the 3D shape and find out what the concerns are. So he and his colleagues solved the problem, sort of. After years of work, they taught Brett to fold a towel in 20 minutes. Eventually, he learned to do it in a minute and a half. But he still can get stumped by things like a bundled-up sock or an inside-out onesie. In other words, years of work from dedicated, smart researchers have produced a towel-folding robot that can't keep up with an average eight-year-old. So that's folding laundry. One of the things that's really come home to me is that in robotics, you can't spend enough money in enough research institutions in this world to create ten fingers that you would be comfortable placing an infant in. Just think about it. Think about the instantaneous calculations and decisions that have to be made between your brain and your fingers to know how to hold an infant. To know how to hold an infant while changing a diaper. Something I'm getting a lot of experience in. And we'll look at that kind of a task and say, man, I can't believe I changed five diapers today. Five diapers before lunchtime. What is going on? And we think of it as something so simple, so tedious, something that it doesn't even enter into our minds how absurdly complex and amazing it is. But the God who made us in his image made us ridiculously complex. That things that would take trillions of dollars and years and years of research you could get a three-year-old to do. And so it is a good thing when we say we're made in his image and not he in ours. (laughs) Because when we make God in our image, we make him an idol that can't talk, move, or do anything. That's what every idol is in the history of the world. And that's what the prophets say. Why are you praying to this thing that can't hear you, that doesn't know you, that doesn't care about you? 
when you are made infinitely beautiful, amazing, and wonderful by the God who is real, who is powerful, and who has given you capacities that you take for granted every single day. So do you see how the law of God provides a lens that brings clarity to the world in which we live when he says not to build any images? Okay, so now we have to bring this to a close. So let's, this is what this commandment of no images tells us as we look through it as a lens. What about as a mirror? We're going to go to the New Testament, the Gospel of John. Because we want to see how the law shapes our understanding of the world. But once we have that insight, certain things become clear as we look in a mirror. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, this is on page 886. Here's a few things we learn about Christ. It says of him in John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jump to verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what this tells us, is that this God who we can only know in a limited way was known by his son in a perfect way, in a complete way. For all of eternity, the word was with the father and the word was an agent in creation with the father to make everything that was made and his light is now shining in the world. But then what it tells us is that though that light has come, we haven't understood it like we should. We haven't known him like we should. And this is an experience for all of us. If you go watch a matinee this afternoon and then you come out from a matinee into a sunny afternoon, it hurts. The brightness of the sun hurts your eyes when what you and I are accustomed to is darkness. And that's true of us spiritually. That we who do not know God like we should, even when he shines the light of his grace upon us, we don't understand it in the way that we should because it's just that much brighter. You or I, to drive home, need sunglasses. So how much more to see God who made the sun, to see God who outshines the sun. But at the very same time, what it's saying is that his son, Jesus, sees all of that, knows all of that, and is the expression of that light. And he came and dwelt among us so that we could see his glory that glory from the only Father full of grace and truth, that he took on a body, that he took on flesh so that we could look at him, so that we could know him and understand him and not be overwhelmed by him. And then this Jesus who was made flesh, if you turn the page in chapter four, this is what we see when we look through the window in chapter four, verses 10 through 26. He's having a conversation. The word who was made flesh is talking to a woman at the well And in verse 10 he says, 
Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you'd ask me, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. So they go back and forth a little bit. Verse 19, the woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He is the complete, perfect revelation of God to us. He can make known to us what would otherwise be unknown. And one of the things that he desires to make known to us is that we who were made in his image can drink from a well that he provides from which we would never be thirsty again. That's not the woman wish-fulfilling and creating a God that she desires to exist. That is the God sending his son to say to that woman and to you and to me that I am real, I am infinite, sovereign, and personal, and I can give you eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in your word and We are so thankful for the truth that you offer that if we were left to our own thoughts and to our limited perspectives and emotions and experiences, for all of us, we would fail to think of you like we should. We would come up with some smaller and lesser and weaker version that would ultimately not be able to provide us hope through all the changing circumstances of life. And so we thank you that you are God and that we are not, that you are sovereign and that we are not, that you are infinite and powerful and that we are not. And we pray that just like your people of old, that you would rescue us from thinking in our minds and our hearts or creating any type of lesser version of you, but that we would be always open to you, to hear from you, to follow you, with our limited understanding, with our limited abilities, but always in sincerity, desiring you. Father, we thank you for fearfully and wonderfully making us in your image, that you have given us minds to think and to comprehend and to consider. And so we pray that we would, with our minds and with our hearts and with our lives, 
Consider your son. Consider his love for us and that we would choose to follow him. It's in his name alone that we pray. Amen.